It's 7.32. Eight years after the 2011 Fukushima meltdown, a beach near the nuclear plant has reopened for swimmers last month for the first time since the disaster. Now, just one year away from the start of the Summer Olympics, the Japanese government is keen to flaunt Tokyo 2020 as the Reconstruction Olympics. Let's welcome on the line Professor Jules Boykoff, Chair of the Politics and Government Department at Pacific University in Oregon and the author of the book titled Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me tell you that the uh, Oregon area is, is one of my favorite places, so I envy you. <laughs> Not a bad place to be, uh, I will say. Thank you. Right. Um, uh, Professor, you had a chance to travel to Fukushima recently, right? Uh, can you tell us more about the visit of the region? You bet. So I was there for a week just in the end of July. It was a week of action for anti-Olympics activists from around the world who had convened for the first ever transnational anti-Olympic summit. And there was a week of events, like I say, and one of them was a trip down to Fukushima. And so we were guided on a bus with journalists, film crews from multiple countries, and everyday people from Tokyo who wanted to see for themselves how things were going down in Fukushima. And so we were accompanied by scientists who had dosimeters, which uh, read the radiation levels in the air. We were accompanied by professors who'd done work on the history of the region and other folks who are very knowledgeable about the issue. So it was a really an enlightening trip for me. I see. Quite a number of people were accompanying you in the trip. Now, Fukushima has also been selected as one of the venues for the Olympic Games. Can you tell us more about it? You bet. Um, so, first of all, uh, there will be Olympic baseball and softball games that are going to be held about 55 miles from where the nuclear meltdown occurred. And they're definitely designed to hammer home the message that these are the, as you put it, the Reconstruction Olympics. I've also heard people call them the Recovery Olympics, the Tokyo 2020 Games. And so there'll be baseball and softball, about 55 miles, as I say, from the meltdown. There's also going to be the beginning of the Olympic torch relay. It's uh, something that started in, in 1936, actually, with the Nazis in uh, Germany. They started the Olympic torch relay as a way of getting excitement around the Olympic Games, where the torch gets handed off from person to person and sort of wends its way around the country. That will start at the Jay Village, which is actually quite a bit closer to where the nuclear meltdowns occurred. And so that will be, the message will be Recovery Olympics at Reconstruction Olympics, and those events will really help the organizers push out those messages. And so it seems like many of the main event or the main activities are happening in the general area there. Um, Tokyo's 1964 Olympics symbolized the Japan's recovery just 19 years after the defeat in World War II. And I'm sure you do see the similar intention for the Tokyo 2020, right? There are a lot of people who I met with in Tokyo and elsewhere in Japan who have pointed out that it was a way of sort of burnishing the reputation of the emperor as well as the country more generally, and that we're seeing something similar happening with the 2020 Olympics. And certainly this notion that these are the recovery Olympics or the reconstruction Olympics is a big part of that. You know, I should say that having been down to Fukushima 
and seen the place with my own two eyes in many of the towns around the area, Okuma Town, for example, it's pretty suspicious, I think, the use of this term, Reconstruction Games. I think it deserves mm-hmm. our healthy skepticism, you know, especially for somebody like myself who studies the political history of the Olympics, so I know full well about the propensity among those running the Olympic Games, doesn't matter the city, to exaggerate what they're doing in terms of the public good. And in fact, there's actually a pretty strong history of what here in the United States we call greenwashing, which is to say Mm -hmm. making big green promises without very much green follow-through. So in other words, making big environmental positive promises, but actually not doing a whole lot to improve the environment. I lived in Rio de Janeiro in the lead-up to the 2016 Summer Games, so the previous Olympics to Summer Olympics to the ones in Tokyo. And big promises were made there as well about what was going to happen in terms of the environment. Big promises about cleaning up Guanabara Bay, which was a place they were going to host some Olympic events. But nothing of the sort happened. And so, you know, I think I've, I've taken on a somewhat healthy, I think, skepticism towards some of these claims. And that skepticism was only hammered home further to me when I actually got to Fukushima and saw that really what we're talking about in that area is a number of what are essentially ghost towns. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of people left, of course. They fled in the wake of that horrible incident. Uh, where, you know, more than 10,000 people died, by the way, as well, and you had all these right. people evacuating, and many have never come back. Um, mm-hmm. So they're definitely not buying the government line that everything is just fine. We're hearing that over and over again. Um, I think there's part of the skepticism is because they've, they've heard lies already uh, given to them. For example, TEPCO, all the way for a full year, kind of denied its role, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, in some of the problems associated with decommissioning the reactors and decontaminating the environment. So if you live in Fukushima, you might have hope and and really want things to turn around. But if you've been lied to a few times, it's kind of hard to take some of those government promises very seriously. Right. Uh, In fact, the lack of transparency was one of the big issues uh, during the time when Fukushima was going around. As you mentioned, we, we have a new emperor in Japan. Probably their intention is to... Uh, make it a kind of a milestone moment uh, complete with uh, the Olympic Games to kind of commemorate the new start. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think you're, I think you're exactly right. They, that is the plan. Um, what was interesting to me, I, another day when I was there for that week of action, was a tour of the Olympic sites and venues. And we went uh, by where the emperor's uh, residence, I guess, is, And there was a law in place in Tokyo that you couldn't build buildings higher than that um, emperor's residence um, as a way of honoring the emperor. Well, that law was flouted. It was changed um, because of the Olympic Games. When they built the new national stadium, uh, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, you know, originally was supposed to be Zaha Hadid, and then it was too expensive, and so they dialed back the plans. Um, When they originally made that um, stadium plan, it was going to be much higher uh, than the places that, that were honoring the emperor. And so um, they actually had to change the law in Tokyo, and that in turn allowed developers to increase the height of their buildings as a way of making more money, and it's really changed the landscape of Tokyo. I see. So I would say, in a way, when I looked at the buildings that were popping up uh, next to the, where the, you know, the emperor's building was, they were towering over it, and I thought to myself, well, we've got you know, tradition versus capitalism, and capitalism is definitely winning in this one here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, also, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm curious as to what other people are saying. In fact, uh, it's not just you, right? Some global activists have already begun to dub the event as a Tokyo 2020, the Radioactive Olympics. But uh, since right. you mentioned that you're traveling with a lot of people in different, uh, different specialties and different uh, interests, uh, were there some consensus as to the kind of a sense of urgency or a sense of uh, uh, kind of concern about the safety? There really were. I mean, it's hard to travel to Fukushima and not feel a sense of urgency. As I mentioned to you before, we were accompanied by a scientist, and he had this dosimeter. And when we picked him up, it read 0.04, so it was actually the safe area uh, in terms of the dosimeter reading of radiation. Um, He told us that anything over 0.23 was actually unsafe, and that's a number that had actually been increased by the government over time. Um, after the disaster. But as we got outside of the Fukushima Daiichi Unit 1 reactor, which was one of the three that melted down, the reading on his dosimeter jumped to 3.77. In other words, like 18 times what's safe. And so it was pretty pretty alarming when, when we saw that going on there. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, there's that, for starters. And then everywhere you go in Fukushima Prefecture, you see these giant stacks of what look like black garbage bags that are filled uh, with the radioactive topsoil that's been scraped up by workers um, who've traveled, most of them, to Fukushima to work. I see. Um, In plain sight. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, Mm -hmm. Everywhere. I mean, the locals would just point to them. We stopped and looked at them. Uh, The locals called them black pyramids because they're just these gigantic structures of black, black bags stacked on top of each other. Um, it was interesting because we could actually see plants poking out through the sort of muck in the in the bags. And mm-hmm. for some, they were like, isn't this hopeful? Look, you know, life can continue. Others were like, this is really scary because these plants that are popping out of the bags, when the wind comes and blows the, you know, their you know, little plant stuff, if you will, <laughs> away, <laughs> uh, it's going to take per- perhaps some of this radioactive material and just spread it back out into the environment. And so... You know, it's hard. My point is, it's hard to go to Fukushima and and not feel a little daunted by the task at hand. And it's especially um, powerful, I would say, to set that up against what the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and what the head of the International Olympic Committee, Thomas Bach, said. I happened to attend the official one-year-to-go ceremony in Tokyo, and they were just brushing over Fukushima like it was a done deal. The recovery was basically over. They weren't even referring to it as Fukushima. They were calling it, quote, the affected areas, if they mentioned it at all. And so, you know, using euphemism to look at it, I think all the members of the IOC, that's the International Olympic Committee, should be handed their own private dosimeter so they can see the radiation levels when they're down in the Fukushima prefecture for the beginning of the relay and certainly for the baseball games that they attend because I think they'll be surprised when they see that it's not actually a done deal. The recovery is certainly not over. I see. Uh, as, you ma- as you mentioned before, a kind of a lack of transparency there from the government officials is kind of worrying. Um, there's a concern about the safety regulation and management. Uh, for example, after the uh, 2011 meltdown, the Japanese government has raised the allowable annual radiation exposure limit. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. I mean, originally the, the international benchmark was, was one sievert. Um, 
and they've raised it 20 times that. And so that really raised a lot of question marks for people I spoke with in Tokyo and Fukushima Prefecture. Like, why all of a sudden did the safety level pop up 20 times to its original level? Um, second, the, the issue around soil and, and groundwater contamination, there's a real question among those I was traveling with about how the soil was collected from farm areas and from forest areas. Some of these areas clearly had not been touched at all that, that we saw. There was no scraping of topsoil. The, the weeds were just growing right next to homes that looked like they'd been abandoned. And so I, I think you have it exactly right. There's been a real lack of transparency about the safety regulations and how they've managed the tragedy. And that hasn't helped uh, when they hear people in Tokyo telling them that it's a done thing and that everything's just fine. They know better because they're, they're living it, and they've seen the authorities raise the levels you know, things that they previously would have been incredibly dangerous, according to the government, only a few months before. And so, you know, I think that they raise a lot of important questions. It's easy for me to go down there. I just want to highlight this. I mean, it was painful and poignant for me to see that, and I saw things that will stay with me for the rest of my, my life. And I think Fukushima is an atrocity that, that threatens the soul in many ways. But I don't live there. I mean, mm-hmm. people who actually live there, and they are breathing in and experiencing these levels of radioactivity in their everyday lives, um, they're the ones that, that are really suffering under this regime. They're the ones that are really suffering under what's becoming an Olympic spectacle that is becoming an excuse as a way to brush the real problems that exist there under the rug. And so, you know, I have a lot of respect for those that are standing up in Fukushima Prefecture. I met somebody named Masumi Kawata. She's one of the members of the uh, Okuma Town Municipal Council, one of 12 members. And She's the only woman, by the way, on the mm-hmm. on the council, and she's been standing up and raising big questions about how serious this recovery actually is, and also wondering whether Japan should press forth with nuclear power. You'll remember there was a little period there where it seemed like Japan might really reconsider its use of nuclear power, but that seems to be shuffling into the past, and uh, Japan seems to be pressing back ahead with its nuclear power. So the real people I think we need to be concerned with are those who are living in Fukushima, and I think we need to listen to them as they stand up. And maybe that's one positive of these Olympics is that it might give a little bit of a, a space for these people to stand up in public and let us know what's really going on there. I see. Thank you. Um, as a former athlete yourself, it seems like your concern is very genuine and uh, uh, loud and clear about these concerns and the safety of the games. Thank you very much for your uh, uh, information. And I, I think this is a kind of a discussion that we should be having uh, going forward more and more. Yes, I agree. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you. This was Professor Jules Boykoff, Chair of the Politics and uh, Government Department at Pacific University in Oregon.